Welcome to episode one of season two of the OrthoPlug podcast, a show where we learn from some of the most inspiring orthopedic surgeons who either come from an underrepresented background or are actively supporting those who do. This is a fantastic episode where we speak with Dr. Victoria Oladipo, who at the time was just graduating medical school and preparing for residency, but is now an orthopedic surgery resident at the Mayo Clinic. In this episode, she describes where her interest in medicine came from. I, I wouldn't say that I'm someone who kind of grew up thinking medicine exactly. Exactly. Um, I had a lot of different interests. She touches on how her unique orthopedic aspirations developed. Probably one of the subconscious reasons I delayed orthopedics for a while. It didn't seem like a natural integration of the other things I was interested in, but... Of course, we talk about the new signaling process. Signaling? I guess I was in the guinea pig year. I kind of forgot about that. And just tons and tons of wisdom. As difficult as this whole process may seem to enjoy the process... I think that investing in the people you meet and being proud of how far you've come and trying to take every tumultuous part of this process as something that will be formative for you down the line, having that perspective is huge. Before we dive into the episode, I have one favor to ask. The best thing that you can do to support the podcast is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. By doing so, you'll be helping the podcast grow and directly contributing to my ability to bring more guests on, continue to improve production value, and just ultimately make the show better for you. All right. Let's hop in. Thank you so much, Victoria Oladipo, for joining the show. I am so excited to talk with you. Um, you are, first of all, like huge congratulations because you're now a little less than a month out from matching at Mayo. And I'm, I have a little bias. Um, you know, I, I think I share in a lot of your excitement because I, I am extremely excited for you. You matched at Mayo where I'm currently a medical student. So, you know, lots to talk about with that. And you also were part of like the historic like 29 black women who matched this year, like an historic number. So, you know, props to that flowers to the entire group. Um, and just say uh, congratulations. And thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It definitely still feels so fresh and kind of surreal. But I'm really fortunate and grateful to be joining the 28 other black women that are around the country. Um, it's just nice to have a little community of our own, but also very excited about the community I'm joining at Mayo Clinic. So thank you. Yes, we are very lucky to have you. <laughs> so usually the way we like to get started is just kind of like knowing where the roots come from and how you kind of got to where you are now. So if you can just tell us a little bit about where this journey started, what kind of motivated you to pursue medicine and then ultimately go into orthopedics? Yeah. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm someone who kind of grew up thinking medicine exactly. Um, I had a lot of different interests. I grew up pretty unconventionally. Uh, my family was actually highly involved in foster care. And so a lot of the things that we did bonding with the children kind of revolved around refurbishing and upcycling and remodeling things to meet their different interests and desires in their living spaces. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, wow, maybe that's why I like the things that I like. <laughs> um, but at the time, this actually kind of manifested in a lot of other interests, like maybe engineering. Um, in addition to that, my dad, he got his physical therapy doctorate actually while I was in middle, in middle school. And this really sparked an interest in biomechanics and musculoskeletal anatomy to me, just like seeing his tenacity and his enthusiasm about those topics was really exciting for me. But still, it wasn't worth it. I was like kind of a late bloomer. Um, in college, I was heavily interested in global health and kind of toggled between more administrative based professions and medicine until I realized in my global field work that I loved that clinical decision making side of things. Um, so I, I went through medical school really honestly giving 
everything a shot. Uh, I, I know that's not usually the case for orthopedic applicants, but uh, I discovered ortho actually in an incidental elective that I got assigned in my third year. And hindsight is twenty twenty. Of course, now I, I look at a lot of my personal and professional interests and everything aligns. But that was definitely a special moment for me. And the people at my institution were so welcoming of me <laughs> finding this new interest. Uh, and from there, I decided to take a research year to really kind of get more rooted in various aspects of orthopedics. Very glad I did that. And now I'm here. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to touch on a few things that you mentioned. I know one of them was that global health interest that you had. Um, and I know at, at Penn State is where we did undergrad. Is that right? Yes. Awesome. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. It's, this is just me trying to flex that I did a little research. That's <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, but I know that you did a, um, like a trip to Senegal when you were at Penn State. Is that right? I did, and, yeah. Um, so you definitely have some like global health interests. And do you plan on using those or allowing those interests to kind of unfold in orthopedics, combining the two? I think there could be some listeners who may share similar interests but may not see orthopedics as the bread and butter specialty for global health. So how do you plan on kind of combining the two interests that you have? Yeah, I love that. Because um, actually, that was probably one of the subconscious reasons I delayed orthopedics for a while. It didn't seem like a natural integration of the other things I was interested in. But actually, it's highly relevant. Uh, a lot of my perspectives of medicine and systems at large, I think, really play a role in the kind of provider I want to be. And when it comes to global health specifically, and a lot of the disparities we see both domestically and abroad, um, when you know a quarter of things that come to primary care or emergency medicine are must skeletal problems, um, it really does lend itself for a lot of questions to be answered about, you know, how are we treating people coming from different backgrounds, who is presenting later, um, who has access to not just orthopedic surgeons, but other people as well, like PM&R um, and adjacent fields. So I think that, first of all, like global health and any kind of public health interest, highly relevant in orthopedics. Like that's, especially with an aging population, something that I just want to emphasize because I didn't think it would be that relevant and it was. Um, but I do hope as a physician one day and maybe a resident, we'll see what Mayo Clinic has um, in store. But I'd love to continue being involved in, in global trips. I think that, you know, there's a lot to be learned from their end. There's a lot to contribute in forms of sustainable development. Um, and I just think that exchange culturally and professionally is really important. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, that's awesome. And thank thank you so much for elaborating on the role that orthopedics can have abroad. because um, it makes complete sense when you when you say it like that. Like we we hear a lot of the times when I'm in family med and my, you know, clerkship, so many of the people just coming in for primary care is coming in with an MSK complaint. And I know that that's yeah. gonna be the case everywhere. Um and so you're right, it does lend itself. And I think a lot of people who may be interested in global health to hear that from you, some like a rock star who's already taken global yeah. health trips doing orthopedic surgery and knowing actually how you can mend the two is, is I'm sure going to be impactful for them. So thank you for that. Um, you also mentioned that you took a research year um, in med school once you kind of figured out that ortho was, was it for you. Um, at this point, I think, you know, with step one going pass fail, and it just seems like research is becoming more important for applicants. Um, can you just walk us through what that experience was like for you? Um, and how should an applicant maybe know 
if they should take a research year or not and kind of how you went through deciding that for yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll start by saying I think I actually decided to take a research year a little bit before even deciding orthopedics. And I know that's kind of strange, but I had an interest. I came into medical school really interested in epidemiology and then kind of found an interest in clinical research, but didn't think I had really the formative skills to make it a huge part of my career. And so when before I had even decided where I wanted to land, I was looking for different opportunities to kind of develop that research mindset, um, being involved in the process from synthesis or like, um, sorry, like conception of an idea through IRB, through data collection, analysis and synthesis, that whole thread, I, I wanted that whole picture. And then deciding orthopedics, I mean, it lent itself perfectly, because this was a field I genuinely felt that I needed to learn more about before committing my entire career to it, you know, as great as my experience had been. And so I specifically switched from doing a general clinical research year to an orthopedic-specific one at Rush University, um, working with Dr. Levine and Dr. Gerlinger. And this position, for me, for what I was looking for, was perfect. I mean, I, I truly got that whole thread that I was looking for and kind of knowing how to not just think about orthopedic problems specifically when it comes to research, but in general, how to be really like productive and and how you frame your questions and how you set up your projects that I think will be great for me in my career. Um, But I will say that with this push toward more and more research years, I don't actually think that everyone needs to be taking them. I think that you really have to do a lot of introspection and self-reflection and think, you know, why do I want to do this research year? Um, And I think I had very specific goals that lended itself very well to that. But if it's just, for example, you know, I'm really afraid of matching. And I just I just want to be as sure as possible. And for why this would be advantageous to you, I don't really know if that's the best person to take a research year. Um, but on the other hand, I do think that for people who are maybe like later bloomers, like I was, or for people who really think the research aspect of their application is just like, it's not suffice for them to be able to um, move forward or for what they think of that, what they uh, what they want out of their career. Um, with academic medicine, if that's their goal. I think that those people really would love a research year. I mean, that's not to say it's easy by any means. It's very difficult and it's a lot of work and there's a lot of sacrifice involved. But I think when it aligns with your goals, very much worth it. Um, I, I do worry that with research years, there is a little bit, not a lot of bit of a disparity of like, you know, who can afford to take these research years. Sometimes they are underpaid. Sometimes they're not paid at all. Um, and again, that's another kind of leak in the pipeline that I think orthopedics as a whole as a field needs to think about as people start taking these years off more. Um, but also from the applicant standpoint, I think, you know, you have to think about if this is something you have the capacity to take. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um it's 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 really encouraging kind of hearing how other people approached their research year because I I personally I did research before med school so like during my gap years mm-hmm. I did research and like thank God it was in an orthopedic sports med facility <laughs> so it was ortho and um, but you know being in that first class with the pass fail step one I have so many of my colleagues and friends in my class who are like this is just you have to take a research year now it's just like you know like but to be able to hear you know. There's a few people who should, like you said, you know, maybe you don't have the research or you have specific goals related to academic medicine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. Um, and I think 
letting people pause for a second and ask themselves like why they want to do this, like you mentioned, is going to be helpful, I think, in guiding people moving forward. And it definitely is not easy. <laughs> so I have a lot of people <laughs> friends who are in their research here right now who are like, yeah, I expected this to be like, not like, you know, whole job, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> yeah, no, it is rewarding, but very hard. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I know that you also absolutely, outside of crushing your research here, you just crushed med school in general. Uh, I know you were selected for membership into AOA or the Alpha Omega Honor Society, um, which is awarded to med students based on their academic performance, achievements in the research that you were doing, leadership, all of those kind of things. Can you share with us some of the things that you were involved in during medical school, like outside of research? Because I know that, you know, just to be an AOA, you kind of have to be a, a boss, which you were. Um, and so <laughs> I'd love to kind of hear some of the other things you were involved in. Yeah, I, I think I, I really went through medical school not even considering AOA as the end result. I feel really grateful to be elected into that. But I really would put my involvements in a few buckets. Um, I think first, I was heavily involved in community service. Um, I did a lot of things with free clinics, a lot of outreach. Again, I love the concept of sustainable developments in communities and Southside Chicago has a lot of work to be done. And there was a lot of opportunity for that. And I stayed involved in that all throughout medical school. I, that's how I was brought up to do things like that. My family obviously being involved in foster care also does a lot of community work. So that was kind of just a continuation of things I already felt very passionate about. Um, and then on top of that, I love institutional service type things. Um, I did a lot of things with leadership within my medical school to improve the learning environment. Um, I was in a four-year position called Identity and Inclusion, or Eye to Eye for short, uh, which just helped with the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, emphasis that Pritzker has to really just bring our community together and kind of propel, push the needle forward in making that environment more inclusive for people and was able to jumpstart a lot of different projects and be a part of a lot of challenging conversations, but very productive ones uh, and really pushing the needle forward. So shameless plug for Pritzker School of Medicine. I think everybody should go there if we have the capacity for it. Um, and then I would say the last thing that really I was super passionate about was pipeline programs. I love just doing things that improve the diversity of medicine in general and, and starting young. So I did pipeline programs at different levels. Um, I did high school level kids, actually middle school level kids and high school, also undergrad, also younger medical students. So I just underrepresented minorities in medicine are really hard to retain. Um, and I really feel passionate about that. So I was able to do that in med school. So I really feel fortunate for that. Oh, that's that's wonderful. And I uh, I really resonate with the idea of like trying to grab people early, as early as possible and then yeah. keep them um, retaining underrepresented students in medicine who want to go into ortho is super challenging. And, you know, the, the lack of diversity in orthopedics, in orthopedics reflects that. So having people like yourself, you know, in Chicago doing all these pipeline programs and even doing like this community service, even if it's not specific to ortho, but just having you out in the community as a, you know, educated, smart, hardworking, like black woman is like a powerful thing for anybody to see. So um, Thanks, that's, that. that's awesome. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we know the kind of things that you were doing. I'm sure that it was like super hard to balance the academics, the research, these programs that you were doing. What are some like 
things that you found helpful or pieces of advice that you would have for other students who want to be able to excel at almost everything that they're doing, which has become basically a requirement for students pursuing competitive fields. Um, but it's not easy. So what were some of the things that you did or some of the pieces of advice that you have for students who want to be able to kind of balance all of that? Yeah, I think that, you know, number one is to give yourself grace. I think really managing not biting off more than you can chew for the sake of like what it looks like on paper, sticking kind of genuine to the things that you are really interested in and also have the bandwidth for. I think that you will do so much better when you have the bandwidth to actually put forth like 110% of your energy into all these different interests instead of stretching yourself super thin. I think that also reflects when it comes time for interviews and applications and all that. I, I don't think it's about quantity, but rather quality. And so first, I'd say like, don't stretch yourself to do all these different things. Um, but in general, I think it's important to keep your support system diverse and diverse as far as people in medicine, people outside of medicine, you know, having mentors that are both that kind of keep you grounded because it's very easy to get so consumed in this entire field. There's always more work to be done. There's always more demands. But I think when you have a very balanced system around you, those are the people that are going to make sure that you don't go off the deep end and do too many, too many things at once. Um, and I think that's been really healthy for me, um, not just with keeping my academic interests at bay, but also encouraging me to still keep pursuing all those things that are nothing to do with medicine, all the things that I love to do and the people that I've met through those other activities. I think that also is kind of a way that I refill my cup and keep myself motivated to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I definitely need to have like the like my wife is a PE teacher and her family they're all like teachers and stuff and when I go over and I get oh, to actually nice. spend some time like not talking medicine and we're just like talking about like football <laughs> as their dad's a football coach and stuff it's like I can actually come back a little rejuvenated so that makes a lot of sense where you're yeah. having stuff outside of medicine can help fill your cup because being stuck in medicine can be a little draining over time <laughs> It can. I actually think that stepping back sometimes, I think it's really hard to be proud of ourselves when it always feels like there's a new challenge. And in the weirdest way, when you just like step back, go into the real world and then come back, you're like, wait, I'm really doing this. Right. Uh, yes. That's the weirdest sensation, but sometimes you need to forget to remember, right? Oh, I like that. That's fire. I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. So ultimately, you put together this increasing applica application, AOA, research, all of these things that, that you were able to accomplish. Um, but I think one of the most important parts of your application ends up being like your sub eyes and these, uh, you know, your, your home rotations and your away rotations. Um, and I think, you know, for myself and other people who have not gone through the application yet, sub eyes are like both like mysterious and like kind of terrifying. Um, you know, I think there's like some, you know, we have a general sense of what, what to expect if we've done a, you know, an elective rotation or, you know, we've gone through surgery or, or something like that. Um, but because there's so much weight, I think, put on sub eyes, especially now, um, you know, I think that there is a sense of like mystery to them and just how exactly are we supposed to go about and what exactly can we expect what's expected of us. Um, so I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through what your sub eye experience was, um, you know, maybe even like what a typical day looked like for you. Um, I know it can be, it can vary based on location, you know, what subspecialty that you're working in. Um, but then, and also some of the things that you felt like you did that allowed you to really excel during those times. 
Yeah. Um, I think that, yeah, it definitely varies a lot uh, between institution, between residency and the attendings you're working with. But I think there are some things that are very consistent themes when it comes to sub-eyes. And again, I'm just one person, so I'm no expert. <laughs> but I think that when you are someone who is pretty flexible, you know, you're able to just kind of go with it. Whatever those new expectations might be, it's going to change depending who you're working with. And, you know, you don't take it personally. You don't um, let that reflect on your self-worth just because, oh, like, you know, this is how, how I usually do it. You know, you kind of have to like detach yourself a little bit from having a rigid schedule or rigid expectations. It'll always change. But I will say that every time you're working with like a new team up front, kind of asking, you know, what is what do you guys typically expect here? You know, I know it varies every place. I know some people find it helpful for me to write notes. I know this might not. Actually just being really transparent of like, hey, like this is a new place and a new role. And people are usually, especially in orthopedics bias, they're so like understanding of that and so just willing to help you get where you need to be that if you just make it be known instead of trying to guess your way through what everyone wants it makes it a lot easier. Um, but I will also say that once you're told what an expectation is, or once you start noticing the things that are helpful to your team, to have some insight, you know, be perceptive and know like, oh, let me keep doing that. You know, don't just stop doing it after you do it once, or uh, kind of drop those expectations that you established. I think it's important to just continue doing those things. Uh, and not to like go around the, you know, typical day, question, but I just think that overarching theme is really important. Mm -hmm. As far as like a typical day, um, I would say that your day kind of starts the night before. Uh, always mm -hmm. being aware of the kinds of patients you're going to be seeing in clinic, what you're going to be seeing as far as cases in the OR, being familiar with your anatomy. I think all of these things are pretty relayed themes across the board and, and everyone, most medical students know to do these things, I hope. Um, but also being early to everything. Don't even be on time. Be early to everything and always kind of come with an attitude that no matter what you're doing, you know, you're there to learn. And I think that for medical students, it's really hard to get out of this mindset of you have to be the most competent, the absolute most confident. I don't really think that's what it's about. I honestly think it's about more that you are willing to get to where you need to be and to be enthusiastic about it um, organically and that you know, this is something that just really interests you. I don't think that anyone is expecting you to be a fellowship trained arthroplasty surgeon <laughs> just because you're rotating on joints for two weeks. So I think right. when you just give yourself grace and step back from that personal expectation to master everything and obviously be as prepared as you can, but it's okay to be a learner. And, and I think it's okay to like be in that role. I, I don't, no one is expecting you to be a master. And then lastly, as you're kind of going throughout the day and, you know, going where you're told to be go to go and everything, keeping in mind that you want to be someone you would want to work with. And that is not the person always that is kind of stepping in, overstepping things and taking over work that's maybe not yours. I mean, truly be someone that you would want to work with. Because that only that not only gives you a good perception of, I guess, that program of how you're received, um, but I think also it, it makes you look better too, right? You want these residents to be like, this is someone that I would want to work with. And so I think we, again, as medical students, forget that, you know, 
we want to be someone that they will want to work with. And so everything what that means, being reliable, being consistent, but being friendly, being open. And that can be hard for some medical students. But I think those are the major things I'd say when it comes to ways, because there's so many things that you can't control, but there are, those are the things that you can control. And I think that's what's best to be, I don't want to say stressed about, but prioritize. Right. That's so helpful. That was probably one of the most like insightful and encouraging kind of explanations of <laughs> what you. to do with these sub eyes. Um, hopefully our listeners, like I would probably re- rewind like five times and run that back because I think going into that, you know, <laughs> I, I know I'm going to um, because, yeah, it, it can be such a like a stressful thing, but it's even more stressful when you don't really know what to be focusing on and what to be you know, how to approach it. But one, I think that, you know, for the most part, that's how orthopedics likes to keep things. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> the night before is when it starts, make sure that you come prepared, know your anatomy, know your patients. Um, you know, when you are with the team, make sure that you understand that you are a learner. It's not about really knowing everything. You don't have to be that fellowship trained joint surgeon. Like you said, you just have to be <laughs> like, intrinsically interested in the field and show that and be willing to kind of observe and know how you can fit in. Don't be scared to ask questions. Don't be some, and then also be somebody that, you know, is enjoyable to work with. I think that I just, I just, per, I personally had to run it back. So it's solidified in my brain, but hopefully now it is in our <laughs> listeners too. That's super helpful. Thank you, Victoria, for that. Yeah. I also think that part of it, I didn't really touch on this, but being wise about the sub eyes that you choose, I actually do think plays a huge role in your drive, I, I guess, to not only just do a good job, but really evaluate the program for what it is. And I don't know that you know, from reflecting back on the cycle, I feel very happy with how I chose and why I chose. But I know some of my friends in the cycle, not so much, and they would do things differently if they could go back. So I think that's also something to keep in mind. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And you don't have to like share where you did your ways or anything like that. But could you maybe like elaborate on some of the things that went into your thought process when you were choosing away rotations? Like I know some people say, I'm going to do a white collar and a blue collar to make sure I have that experience and be able to discern or I'm going to go into like a private academic institution and an academic institution and see which one I like better. But what were some of the things that kind of went into your thought process with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a, a great point. There's a lot of different kinds of programs. And I think for me, I wanted three programs that felt very different. I wanted different flavors because I think that you can't see all the programs that you might be interested in. But for me, I wanted to kind of look at it in buckets of programs I might be interested in that I could kind of extrapolate different points of those programs that appealed to me or maybe didn't appeal to me and apply them to maybe other interviews I got down the line. And so, you know, for me, and then also I think challenging yourself and seeing how you navigate that learning atmosphere, what's the most conducive to your learning style, I think that was super helpful. And so for me, I chose one small town program with lots of tertiary care, a very busy level one trauma center, and then also an academic or uh, urban center that shared its patients with other academic centers in the same city. And for me, that was very like, I didn't really think of it as like blue collar, white collar. I don't, I don't even really know how to delineate that very well. Right. Still. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought of it like that, like patient populations, kind of how the structure of their system was. And I lucked out because I honestly loved all three of those rotations. It didn't actually make 
my life any easier. But I did see how their strengths were very apparent in the four weeks that I spent there. And as I went on different interviews, I was able to kind of see myself or not see myself better at certain places because of these attributes that they had. Um, I also think that people should 100% consider location. If you don't just rotate somewhere to rotate somewhere, if you would never want to live there. I think on the other hand, it's important to rotate somewhere to see if you may want to because you're interested in a program. But um, I think that's kind of a waste of a rotation (laughs) if you have no interest in going there. Um, And then as we touched, and then also I would attend open houses and talk to residents about the culture if you can. Um, Obviously, there's only so much information we can get, but all of those things were really important to me and kind of played a part in why I chose my ways. That makes sense. That's really helpful too. I mean, I'm currently in that process of solidifying a ways and it could be a stressful process, you know, unless you have kind of, I think, a straightforward outline of what you're looking for, then you can just have no idea where to start and where to go. Um, so that, that's very helpful, Victoria. Thank you. Um, I want to ask another, uh, one question now, moving on to the actual application, going, filling out ERAS. And then also second part of this kind of application question is thoughts, experience with the signaling. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'll start with the ERAS. I think trying to get as much as you can in before you start your away rotations is key. <laughs> I was on call a lot. <laughs> I was like, I kind of wish I did some of this earlier. Um, and, and really thinking about those other supplemental pieces like your personal statement around now. It's April right now. I hope that people have some drafts going and mentors looking at those drafts. I think some of those things you can just have ready to go. Um, I think also thinking ahead of time, who your letter writers might be. I know with a ways that makes things difficult, but um, even thinking like how you time your ways, like where do you want to get your letters of recommendation from? Uh, I think that's important to consider as well. Um, with the signaling, I guess I was in the guinea pig year. I kind of forgot about that. I was like, oh yeah, that we were the first to do that. Um, I think signaling was definitely heavily. I did get you know, a sprinkle, maybe three or four interviews that were from programs I didn't signal. Um, but I think, I don't really know if it was they just didn't want to participate in the first cycle. They were going to interview who they wanted to interview regardless. Um, some of them actually were pretty open about not really buying into the signaling just yet. But I would say for the most part, and especially even just thinking about my friends in the cycle, signaling was used. And uh, I would not encourage students to apply to 100 programs like the old days. Um, I only applied to like 40 something, which I know is risky. I just said I was a guinea pig and now I'm telling you that I didn't <laughs> apply to any programs. But um, I guess I can live to, to tell the tale. Right. I, I personally, I have a lot of friends that spent a lot of money um, on a lot of programs, like 120 programs, to mainly get interviews from the 30 that they signaled. Like this cycle, how they'll adjust like the number of programs, if it'll be the same as last year. But I do think that regardless, think very seriously and critically about those places that you signal and signal broadly. Uh, I think it's really important not to, you know, over like assume that you are a super, super strong candidate or super, super weak candidate. I think it's important to just be broad Um, because the reality is we are in a very 
small subsection of applicants that for the most part are probably pretty similar on paper. And I think that, you know, is the people that diversified the places that they signaled were a little bit happier in Universal Offer Day than people mm. that kind of like stuck to one type of program. Gotcha. That's very helpful. Yeah, you guys were definitely the guinea pigs. And <laughs> I guess we will. <laughs> I, I think, you know, I'm sure data will come out. Um, but I think I have been hearing pretty frequently that the vast majority of interviews are being from places that people are signaling. And like you mentioned, there may be a sprinkling of some. Um, but, you know, I don't think that it's worth, hopefully not worth applying to 100 plus programs. <laughs> It's already expensive. Fourth year is already expensive enough right now. So, oh yeah. <laughs> um, so the the final question that I have just about your experience, kind of going through med school now, is just with the interview process. Um, and so, what were some? What was your overall experience with the interviews? Um, and what were some of the things that you found helpful in preparing for them? Yeah. Um. So I I think that the interviews were kind of. And I always use this like bucket analogy. I think about a lot of things like this. So in buckets, right? <laughs> so one bucket of interview style was very conversational. Another bucket was kind of like pre-templated questions that are pretty standard interview questions. And then you have these other interviews that are more situational, um, maybe some knowledge things, uh, just different things to really get into how you think. Um, and you got to be prepared for every situation, even the conversational ones. I do think that there are ways to kind of stand out in that way. Um, for example, I think, yes, we all know our experiences, but be very comfortable speaking very genuinely about them. And when you prepare, don't rehearse what you're going to say verbatim. I think it's important to have the bullets of the major ideas that you want to hit so that when you do speak about it, it comes off very extemporaneous. And instead of coming off like you're reading from a script, because yeah. <laughs> that's not organic at all. So for the conversational interviews, that would kind of be my biggest piece of advice. And um, the second bucket, what was the second bucket I said? The, uh, oh, the templated so, interview mm -hmm. questions. I think that for those, I mean, that's where you're going to find 50 most common ask interview questions. I'm sure everyone has Googled that at some point. Um, really knowing the big ones, the strengths, the weaknesses, the why ortho, obviously. I mean, there's ones why you want to go to that specific program, um, an ethical scenario that you've been in. I think that there are just some that you should expect and they are just commonly asked. Know your answers for those. Um, and then for the knowledge rooms, I think it's really important or scenario, situational or knowledge. I think it's important. Obviously, you'll come off of a ways and have a nice little fund of knowledge, hopefully, if you've been preparing throughout that time. But I actually think what's most important is how you think through this and not getting so frazzled and like, oh, my God, I don't know the answer. But just giving it your honest effort, even if you're like, I'm not sure if this is 100% right. It's really about your attitude uh, more than again, making sure like you're an arthroplasty fellowship trained. No one is expecting that. Um, but I do think that <laughs> how you approach those situations can get you really far, even if you're not right on the head. Um, but again, doing well in your ways, I think is an inadvertent way to do well in those kinds of interview rooms. Oh, that makes sense. That's, that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's a good, I, cause even for me right now, like I'm on the, um, admission committee for the Mayo med school. Um, and so like I, one of the reasons why I'm on it is I wanted to get kind of know from the inside out of, you know, interviewing and things like that. And even with that, I'm still just like terrified of like a uh, residency interview. Cause I, I don't know. I, I feel like most people don't talk too much about them. We hear a lot of things about like the aways and how to do well on that. And 
you know, yeah. research and things like that. But um, yeah, the interviews I've, you know, I know I've heard stories of, you know, using chopsticks to pick up M&Ms and place them in bowls and <laughs> things like that. And while you're interviewing so and, and I think that that may be a thing at some places, but um, it's still, yeah. I think, encouraging just to kind of know, you know, those three buckets and making sure that you're strong and answering those kind of things is, is going to be helpful. Um, one kind of, this is probably I'm not personal. worried about you, JR. <laughs> wow. I appreciate you. I'm not you. worried about you. You're going to do great. <laughs> well, with your, with your mentorship and guidance, I might have a chance. So <laughs> with, um, with like the, when you have a lot of research, so you took a research year and I know that like almost, it's almost a guarantee that you're going to get a question on like one of the research, like how did you go about preparing to answer those? Like, did you, because I feel like I'm on quite a few projects i'm gonna like read through the abstracts i'll probably like have like a binder full of them just so i can like continue to read but when you do have a large library of research um is i feel like it can be challenging to know critically about every single project um and you don't necessarily know what project is going to be asked about in some projects you you know did the data collection and wrote everything else then wrote everything up in other projects you did a chart review and let it be kind of thing yeah. um and so how did you kind of go about preparing for those questions yeah, so I, I I think you're off to a great start of being familiar with everything that you've been a part of, of course. But also a helpful thing is to actually be familiar with everything you contributed to each of those projects. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being straightforward and being like, yeah, I did. Like if they ask you a, a statistical question, you're like, well, I did the chart review and the writing. That's still more than enough contribution to be credited for this. But you don't have to like come up with, you know, so I think that writing down also what you contributed is huge. Um, a lot of times in the interview process, for me anyway, they asked about what project I was most proud of, or just told me to tell me about their favorite one. And so I would encourage you to, of course, be familiar with all of your research, but have a few that you just like know cold. And not just know cold, also know why are you the most proud of this? Is it the amount that you contributed? Is it that it may be just an area that you would like to continue to explore in your professional career? Like have a very concise and articulate way to express why you're so proud of this project outside of just like it was accepted to JBJS. Like <laughs> have something that actually requires some reflection as to why you're so proud of it. Um, and I would save this for a few projects to have that really thought out background. Because honestly, you know, I kind of had the same fear going into the interview process. And I either got asked about the most recent ones, ones that I was maybe first author on, or again, like the ones that I'm like really most proud of. I actually found that some of the more distant things, again, I was familiar with them, didn't actually get brought up. So... That's good yeah. to know. Very good to know. <laughs> Definitely going to go through and highlight some and get my little stars next to the ones I need to make sure are down cold. Um, <laughs> but that's that's super helpful. I'm serious. It's like all of this kind of stuff when, you know, having the opportunity to, to speak with you and hear your feedback and thought process with things. Super, super helpful for me. I know it's going to be extremely helpful for everybody listening. Um, you know, and you're just time is super valuable. I mean, you just matched, uh, you. you know, a little less than a month ago and you're still taking time to give back. So, you know, it goes back oh. to that same heart who was in the Chicago streets, encouraging people and lifting people up and starting pipeline programs from middle school to med school. Um, you know, we, we really, really appreciate your time. Um, I'll just mm -hmm. leave it now to you for any kind of like final words, any last kind of pearls of wisdom that you may have for any students who are 
as uh, appreciative of your time as I am. Yeah, well, thank you. First and foremost, appreciative of your time. I believe you're studying for step two. So <laughs> I just want to kind of throw that back at you that this is insane that you're doing all of this for so many different people to benefit from. And I know that for someone like me that didn't have a ton of guidance in medicine at all, I would have loved to have something like this. So I appreciate you as well. Um, but I would say my final words uh, would be that as difficult as this whole process may seem to enjoy the process, I think that investing in the people you meet and being proud of how far you've come and trying to take every tumultuous part of this process as something that will be formative for you down the line, having that perspective is huge. Uh, there will never be a time where you're not working hard, you're not making sacrifices and being challenged, but you really decide on how you decide to reflect on those times in either an asset-driven way or a deficit-driven way. And I choose asset-driven. <laughs> so if you're always focused on the end goal, you might miss the view. And that's that's my, that's my two cents. <laughs> I love that. You just came out with some bars. Focus on the end goal, you might miss the view. Okay. Yeah. You are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much again. Uh, incredible advice from an incredible person. Thank you again, Victoria. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Dr. Victoria Oladipo. I told y'all it was good. She is amazing to say the least. But I just wanted to send one last reminder to like and review the show if you haven't already. All right, we'll see you next week.